0: thanks Aaron. Um, well welcome everybody to Creekside here. You know one more thing that uh, for for you men I, I really want to encourage you men to come to the men 's breakfast on the nineteenth um, it's going to be a time where we can just start talking through what what we need as men to like grow in christ and and how to accomplish that. So on the card that sherry mentioned, there's two questions on the same side as that qr code there's two questions on there. one of them is how do you want to grow in Christ like do you need to grow in humility and in patience or in love or in whatever it is, all of the above, right? You were looking at me when you said that. So uh, the, uh, and what do you need to make that happen? And, and on the card, it's uh, like, do you need to change something in your life? Do you need deeper friendships? Do you need to grow in like your understanding of the scriptures? And one of the things we want you to do is talk to other guys about that. And if you have no guy that you can talk to about those two questions, that might help you answer one of them, two of them. Um... Uh, but uh, and then join us for breakfast on the nineteenth. So um, yeah, please make that a priority, guys. If you are a part of the church here, or even if you're not, yeah, um, feel free to feel free to join us. You know, if you are just joining us, we are studying in the book of First Samuel, and we're going to be finishing up the book of First Samuel by the hopefully, Lord willing, by the end of November, and then going into our Advent series starting in December, and. Um, you know, throughout the throughout the course of of the book of First Samuel, some of you might like might be a little bit confused at times because you probably, if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard things like uh, where we talk about David as being a man after God's own heart. Have you guys like anybody kind of like heard that expression before? Okay, and yet we one of the things we stumble into when we come into like going through a story like this is we run into stories and, and accounts from David's life where. He is not just a pure hero. And we look at the villain of our story, who's King Saul. So if you're just joining us, King Saul is the reigning king of Israel, and God had chosen David to replace him. And the last, I don't know how many weeks, we've been looking at this manhunt that's been going on where Saul is trying to kill David because he doesn't want David to take the throne from him. And what we found out during that time, like throughout our study of this book, is that Saul, even though he's kind of like our villain in the story, he's not a pure villain, We've seen some good moments for Saul, where God used him to deliver His people from from their enemies. Where a couple times, where it looked like Paul had been brought to a point of—I mean, Saul—I'm used to switching Saul and Paul in my head. <laughs> Saul had been had been brought to this point of like acknowledging at least his sin and recognizing that David was going to be the next king. So there's been these glimmers of hope with Saul, except like he always seems to return to like like. His animosity and hatred of David, because that's what like lived in his heart. You know, there's these behavioral changes he might have for a moment, and he retur- but he returns to like what he is what he's wired to do. But then we have King David, or the, the coming King David, who we've had some great moments with. David he slayed Goliath, he's done all of these things. But then we've also seen some really like difficult times where where David like lied to the to the priest at Nob, and it ended up resulting in like all, all but one of the priesthood being wiped out. We've seen him like fly off the handle in anger as he was insulted and was going to go wipe out this guy's like entire like all of the men in this guy's entire household. You know, and if it wasn't for Abigail, this, like, courageous and brave woman to, that was able to talk him down, he, he says he would have, like, gone and done that horrible sin. You know, and our text this morning is one of those texts where, where the Bible is, I think, um, disconcertingly transparent about, like, the sins of, like, the characters within it. And, and it's, it's kind of in, the, in that transparency of where we see people's, like, sin and difficulty that God's grace actually um, shines and he receives all the glory because David wasn't king because David was a perfect guy. Like, God chose David b- to be king because it was part of his purposes and, and God was the one that was going to keep bringing David back again um, to obedience to him. You know, um, and this week what we're going to see is that David's, like, kind of, like, he loses hope. This manhunt where he's been hunted by Saul has been going on for, uh, most scholars think, several years at this point in time. So he's been a hunted man. He's probably, like, losing sleep. He's waking up in the middle of the night wondering if whoever he posted as sentry is, uh, is awake, if Saul's sneaking up on him. If if you've ever been hunted for your life, you can imagine what that's like, right? How many? Anybody? Okay, good. So, oh, one. Okay, one. Uh, you know, and David loses hope here. He despairs of his situation, and he takes matters into his own hands, and, and he seeks his own safety. He seeks his own, like, security. He, um, and this, the difficult part of the story is that it completely works for him. Like, um, his pragmatism resulted in at least temporary success. And it's, that sh- it, this text is going to show us, like, the temptation of pragmatism, because there's all sorts of things we can pursue in our lives that seem to work for us, at least for a while. And yet, what we'll see in King David's life is that his, he's, his, his loss of hope that stemmed from his unbelief led him down this downward spiral where he ended up, like, committing grievous sin in First Samuel 27. You know, when I was cutting my teeth back in ministry in Chicago, like... Cutting my teeth means I was younger for those of you who don 't know the expression back when people wore horse, rode horses and horses cut teeth i think that 's where it comes from um, uh, back when I was younger when we still rode horses uh, there was this mentor this mentor pastor of mine who went to like moody 's Moody Bible Institute was where I went to Bible college and. He went to he went to Moody's pastors conference and one of the speakers there was this well known like evangelical pastor. If I dropped his name today, I think I think you would probably recognize his name, or at least many of you would. And he was probably like he was like kind of like the the big shining star of evangelicalism at the time because he had this like massively growing church. And so he was speaking at pastors conference and and he said at the pastors conference he says you know when we started like I'll just I, I don't want to burn the guy down. So when we started Creekside Community Church. Um, he says, what we did is we surveyed 400 homes in the area. And we asked them, what don't you like about church? And people said, well, we don't like uh, the uncomfortable seating. And we don't like ha- having religious artifacts all over the place. And we don't like, um, we don't, the services are boring. And, and we don't like to hear about sin and judgment all the time. And, and they kind of had this whole list of things. And so then, then he went on to say, he said... Um, he said, so when we started, like, the church, he said, well, we just we committed that we're, we're going to have, like, comfortable seats. And so if you come to our church building, you're not going to sit in pews. You're going to sit in, like, stadium seating that's real comfortable. And and we don't have lots of religious artifacts around. And, and our, we try to keep our services, like, engaging and interesting so that you don't get bored. Um, and, like, we don't talk about sin and judgment, like, in our Sunday morning services. And I was like as he was telling me the story I'm like wait 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 wait. like you just threw in talking about sin and judgment in with comfortable seating <laughs> like the gospel of luke it was jesus commissioning his disciples at the at the end of the gospel of luke he says that he says that the christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sin. sins should be proclaimed to all nations starting in Jeru- like in my name, starting in Jerusalem, and he goes on. Like Jesus says, the one thing you have to do is proclaim this message of my death and my resurrection and, and repentance for forgiveness of sin. And we're just going to like slip that out of our service because it makes people uncomfortable at times. Now sometimes like in churches, like we can lose our nerve and we forget like, Who's really in charge, and we forget the power that he's like, that he uses to transform people, and we can just slip into pragmatism. But the reality is, is like, you know, that, that's kind of like a story that interests me because I'm a pastor and it kind of goes against my own convictions. But I think, like, there 's that temptation for all of us. sometimes we lose height, we lose hope and we, we lose sight of what really matters and we lose, and we, we begin to distrust the power of God to work in the ways that he say he 's going to work, and we just slip into our pragmatism and we act as if god doesn 't even exist. Right? We might give him like token like token worship and token like commitment to his purposes, but ultimately. It's just one more thing in our busy schedule, and we're just like living as if God wasn't really at work in this world. That's what happens to King David. So please stand with me as we go through the text this morning. It's um, we're, I'm going to start reading at the end of. Well, I'm just going to start reading at chapter twenty-seven, verse one, and then we'll then we'll uh, pray. I, I think I'll read verses one through. I don't know what, one through five, and then we'll pray and then we'll, um, we'll get into our study together. This is God's word for his church. Then David said to himself, now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape to the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel and I will escape from his hand. So David arose and crossed over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each with his household, even David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. Now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. Let me pray, and, and then we'll start. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that you are so patient with us as, as faithless people sometimes, and I just ask that you would, you would grant us hope, that you would help us to believe what you've promised and recognize what you've done and live as if um, you're still at work in the world today because I know that you are. And so I just ask that you would empower me to speak. I don't have the ability to speak your word without your spirit's power, so I just ask that um, you would allow me to do that today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know it's interesting because if you look at the end of verse of chapter twenty six, um, you know you have this high point of David's life. Like he he for the second time had an opportunity to kill King Saul and put an end to his fleeing. Um, you know forever. In fact, he wouldn't have even had to do it himself. He could have just commanded Abishai to do it for him and for him. And no one except he and Abishai would have known. And then you see this statement in verse 23 of chapter 26. It says, And the Lord will pay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. David had this high point that that in his mercy that he showed to Saul, it demonstrated his, his righteousness and his faithfulness before the Lord. And we can all like, man, that's, a, that's the kind of king that we want. Well, a king that's going to walk in righteousness and faithfulness. And then, and then he has this great statement of trust. Look what he says in verse 24. Now behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of the, of the Lord. And may he deliver me from all distress. Like David was looking to the Lord to deliver him. He was praying to the Lord with confidence that the Lord was going to deliver him. He spared Saul's life. It was this testimony of righteousness and faithfulness. And then we get to verse 1 of chapter 27. I'm not sure what happened between chapter 25 and chapter 27, verse 1. But David's perspective is completely different. He's lost sight of the Lord because look what he says. Then David said to himself, now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. He kind of got to this place of just like, man, I, this has gone on for so long. How many times can I dodge the bullet and survive? He, it's, this, it's this moment of unfaith. And what we're going to find here, and I think, it's, I think it's really important for us to recognize this, is that when we forget, like David did, and you'll, I'll show this to you as we go through the text, what the Lord has done for us, and what the Lord has promised us, and we begin to listen to our own voice, our, our own voice can be our worst enemy. When we lose sight of what God has done and what God has promised, our own voice can be our worst enemy. David said to himself, I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. Now think about that for a moment. If you've been with us through our study in in the book of in the book of First Samuel, like back clear back in chapter twenty three, when David was fleeing for his life yet again, in chapter twenty three verse seventeen, he's uh, Jonathan, his best friend, who was actually um, heir to the throne. He was Saul's son said this to him, but like in the power of the Spirit, it says that he he encouraged him in the Lord, it says. And then he said to him, do not be afraid because the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you and you will be king over Israel. So Jonathan's like, Jonathan's statement to him, like speaking God's word to him is like, David, don't be afraid because you will be king. My dad's hand will not find you. God will protect you. And yet, what does David do here? He completely forgets God's word to him. You know, how many times since chapter 23 did God like prove himself to be true? There was incident after incident after incident that we've been looking at where it looks like David's going to get caught and killed and God delivers him yet again. So God had promised him, God had proven himself to him, and yet David forgot about that altogether and said in his unbelief, said, man, I'm going to perish one day by the hand of Saul. Then his next statement is interesting, too. It's, it shows like this unbelief in, verse, in, in that first statement leads to this cynicism. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the ha- land of the Philistines. There is nothing better for me. Like what a sad, sad statement. He's like, man, God's abandoned me. I I keep losing sleep over this thing with Saul hunting me. I've been kind of exiled from my own land. My own countrymen have betrayed me. And now I've just slipped into this cynicism of like the best thing I've got going is what the Philistines got going. The enemies of God's people. You know, apparently he forgot what Abigail, who became his wife, she wasn't his wife when she said this, what Abigail had told him in 1 Samuel 25. Listen to what she says in 1 Samuel 25. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies, he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. What she's saying is like, David, anybody that rises up against you, you're going to be like recorded in God's book and bound together in it. It's a scroll in those days. So you're bound up in the scroll of God's book of life. And your enemies are going to be flung like a stone from a sling. And David knows much about slings. And then she goes on and says, And when the Lord does for my Lord, talking about David, according to all the good that he has spoken to you, And appoints you as king over Israel. And she goes on. But Abigail was like, you know what, David? God is going to protect your life. God has spoken good for you. And God is going to accomplish that good for you. And one day you're going to be king. And here David says, the only good for me is what the Philistines have to offer. I'm going to kind of abandon my place amongst the people of God and just pursue what the surrounding nations have. He, he goes from unbelief to cynicism because the path to goodness that God had for him was, took a lot longer and was a lot more difficult than he expected. And so he just gave up. Verse two, so David arose and crossed over he and the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maoch, king of Gath. You know, there's more going on in verse 2. The author kind of uses some interesting language there. There's more going on in verse 2 than just telling us that David got up and traveled down to Philistia, which, is, which would be westward from where David was at down to along the Mediterranean Sea. It says David arose and crossed over. There's no geographical thing that David had to cross over. The Jordan River was on the other side. What talking about is David switched sides the future king of Israel now is switching sides and allying himself with Achish, king of the Philistines, like the long-term enemies of Israel. Like David's despair caused him to switch sides. And apparently, like the prophet Gad earlier in the book I don't um, had told him, like, no, David, you stay in the land of Israel. But David's like, no, I'm going to cross over and go to the Philistines because that's the best thing I've got going. You know, one of the things I haven't mentioned yet is in this entire chapter, like God is never mentioned once in this entire chapter. David does all sorts of stuff. But he never like considers the promises of God. He never considers how God has proven himself to him again and again. He moves into unbelief that takes him into cynicism, and he thinks the best that he's got going is what the Philistines have to offer. You know, how often do we kind of, do our lives reflect that same unbelief and cynicism about things? You know, one of, the, one of the kind of like meta themes of this book is like this rise of the monarchy and, and how as people we long for a king like the nations. The people of Israel like lost sight of what God had promised to them early in the book. And they're like, we don't want you to rule over us, God. We want a king just like the nations. If you ever been with us, you guys remember that? It's a big theme because they didn't believe that God could give them what they longed for their journey had been too like long and too difficult and so they just wanted a king that could provide for them and no matter what God said to warn them they still said no we want a king and and this, this that metatheme is playing on here david just didn't go personally like to 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 philistia he left like his calling and aligned himself, not just with a king like the nations, but a king from the nations. You know, how often do we do the same thing? Like we do this on a national level, where where we're frustrated with where the this like the, the world's going and and we don't think that the power of the gospel and and God's work in the church is enough and so we we take our eyes off of what God's promised and what God has accomplished and we and we place our hope on like political power to give us what only God can give us. Now I'm not saying like we're we're going into the midterms, right? And I'm not saying that we shouldn't vote. Like here in America, we have like freedom of speech. We have a voice and that voice, we can articulate it. We can use it in our voting. What I'm talking about is our hope. Like when we place our hope in any party or in any personality, and one of the ways to find that out is what goes on in your heart, like as you're looking at all this stuff. And we take our eyes off of the Lord, who is. What what did Jesus say at the end of the Gospel of Matthew? All authority has been given to me. When we lose sight of what God's accomplished and what God's promised, like we can move into unbelief and into and into cynicism, or maybe we do it as a like in regards to the church, not just nationally, but kind of like churchily. If that's a word, it's not, but. You know, like you, you read these promises and these descriptions in the scriptures about what God wants to accomplish in his church. And then it gets a little bit more difficult than you think it should be. And, and, it, and it takes a little bit longer than you think it should before, like, you get to experience what God has in his church. And it never seems like quite enough. And so what do we do? We just get cynical about God's plan. We forget, God's, we forget what God has promised, that he's building his church. And this is the vehicle that he uses for our growth and for his glory in this world. We get cynical and, and we just say, there's nothing better for me than what the world has to offer. And so we just pursue all of the things of this world instead of like, like submitting ourselves to the purposes of God that he's accomplishing in his church. And we fill up our time and we just give God token worship. You know, we just do it personally and there's like infinite ways we do this, Right? How often do you like forget God's promises to you? Forget like to to see what God has done for you over the years and you slip into like unbelief and cynicism and despair and you lose hope. God has promised good for us. And even if the journey is like long takes longer than you think it should or it's a little bit harder than you think it should. Like David should be a warning to us like Keep your eyes on the Lord because his promises are always true. His promises are always true. What happens next? Like David continues spiraling down. Let me pick up in verses at verses six and seven. It says, Now David and his man went up and and oh nope, not six and seven. Five through whatever. I'll stop reading. Then David said to Akish. If now I have found favor in your sight, let them, let them give me a place in one of the cities in the country that I may live there. For why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. So what we have here is that David like actually seeks the approval and the reward that King Akish can give him. He's seeking earthly approval. He's he's living in he's living in uh, Gath Akish, son of Maok. Now, if you've been with us again in your, our journey of first Samuel, this isn't the first time Akish has shown up. Does anybody remember where Akish showed up before? Shoot up showed up before? Anybody? At the very beginning of david 's flight it 's kind of disappointing. nobody remembers so I'm not that 's not a rebuke, but you know what'd you say sounded like one sorry my face like so if you were wondering about the fa- my facial hair, I know my face normally irritates all of you, but now it 's irritating me so but uh, it needs to grow a little bit longer. No, Achish, when David first fled from Saul, he went and lied to the priests of Nob, and then he fled to Achish, king of Gath. And he, there, he, had, like, he was by himself, and, and they found out that this was David, the guy that killed Goliath, that had slaughtered a whole bunch of Philistines and was number one like wanted man in the country of Philistia. And so David was fearful for his life, so he had to act like a crazy person. Um, and then Achish was like, this can't be David, he must be a crazy guy, and kicked him out. Now you guys remember the story? Okay. That's Achish. And there's, there's some debate over if this is the same Achish or not, because Achish could be a title, but it doesn't really matter because they know the story in Philistia about David. And David goes to this same king, but things are different now. He's not by himself. He brings with him 600 warriors, also, like when David fled to Achish the first time, um, nobody knew that King Saul was hunting uh, David. Like Saul had sent assassins to go kill David, but it wasn't a public thing. And so when David showed up in, in Philistia, like, there was no knowledge of the dispute between Saul and David. But now, like, it's common knowledge that Saul like, had mobilized the entire armies of Israel to, to hunt David. And so now you've got this, this guy who's a, like a renowned warrior who had actually attacked and defeated you at times, offering him and his, ser- and his men's service to you. And you know he's an enemy of King Saul. And the proverb, you know what it is? It's not from the Bible, but the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? So Achish expediently says, oh, yeah, I'll, take any, I'll, I'll do anything that's going to further undermine my enemy in Israel, and I'm going to take this guy who has a thought to be king, and I'm going to bring him into my service. So David, and look what he says, if now I have found favor in your sight. David's like living for the favor of Achish, and then he says, give me a place. I'm tired of being on the run I don't want to live in the palace with you. And he kind of defers to like the king. You're too cool to hang with. Just give me some city of my own. And back in that day, kings did that kind of stuff. And so Achish gives him, uh, Achish gives him Ziklag. So now David, for the first time, has like walls around him. His men can station themselves on the wall. They can shut the gate. He can be safe. And just like just like happened up, up in verse three, I guess I didn't, or no, up in verse four, where it says that Saul no longer hunted for David. Here David gets his city and finally has a home in this world instead of having to like flee from King Saul. Like his, his pragmatism was working. It stopped, the, it stopped the manhunt. It gave him a home. It gave him like four walls to protect him. He would, able, he would finally be able to get a good night's sleep? You know, the problem is is that like God never called David at that point in his life to go to Philistia and find himself a home and four walls where he can have safety and security. What, what God had for David was like fleeing from the hand of King Saul and like experiencing his deliverance again and again and again. You know, David lost sight of the fact that as God's people in this world, like we're not called to be at home here. But we're called to be like strangers and exiles. The writer of Hebrews talks about this. The writer of Hebrews talks about this in Hebrews chapter 11, which is, some of you might know that as the, the hall of fame of faith. In Hebrews 11, verse 13, talking about the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it says this in verse 13. All these died in faith, now listen, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, like the the patriarchs and all of the people that have walked by faith after them have kind of part of their confession is, is that we are strangers and exiles on this earth. This isn't our ultimate home. It goes on. For those who say such things makes it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of the country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. And if you lose sight of the Lord and start thinking about all the things that, that uh, this world has to offer, guess what? There'll be opportunity there. It might even work for you for a while like it was for David. David goes on, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Like the life of faith is this life that seeks God's approval and his approval alone, not the approval of the powers of this world, not the approval of the influencers, not the approval of everybody around you seeks God's approval and lives for God's kingdom and not for the life here and now. You know, we face that temptation as churches all over the place and as Christians all over the place where we're tempted to, to seek man's approval on areas of sexuality or areas of politics or areas of, like, you name it, right? But the person who walks by faith, like, seeks God's approval and realizes, boy, like we're never going to be at home in this world. But we long for that. We long for that sense of place that David longed for. We long for that sense of security that David longed for. And, and too often we like sell out for a cheap substitute instead of just continuing to follow the Lord because it takes a little bit longer than we expect. What did it say about the patriarchs? They saw and welcomed the promises from a distance. In fact, you know, all of the people that have followed like in, in the steps of faith, like have that the, the same testimony that they're that they're looking to the heavenly city and, and Moses, this is what it says about Moses in Hebrews eleven. It says in Hebrews eleven twenty five, it says that he chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Now listen, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. Like David just did the opposite. I'm going to take the treasures of Achish and the security of Achish and the home of Achish and forget about what God's doing. But he's saying here, Moses, he, 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 he embraced the reproach that following Christ had and rejected everything that the world offered him. You know, at some point, it's not unlikely that our allegiance to Christ will be tested like Moses was. You know, will you embrace the reproach of Christ, or will you just, like, sit comfortably in the treasures of Egypt? You know, Moses knew that, like, it's with the Lord that there's hope. It's with the Lord that there's that there's life. And before I go on to my third and last point, like, you know, I was thinking about the problem with David. I was actually going to bring this in at the beginning of my message, but in Jeremiah 17, you know, when David lost hope. Can you put those up, Jen? They're from the, there it is. You know, it's interesting. In Jeremiah 17, the prophet Jeremiah is speaking to the people of Israel, and he says, he says, "Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind, and whose and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord." Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turned away from the Lord. That's exactly what, that's exactly what um, David was doing. He was trusting in his own strength. He was trusting in the the his own flesh and his heart had been turned away from the Lord. It goes on in Jeremiah's, I think it's 17 verse. What's the next one? Oh, yeah, here it says, but, but, the, but the prophet says this, heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are my praise. You know, the reality is this, is that when we, when we try to like do things on our own, It can pragmatically work for us for a while. We can get a home and safety and security and the treasures of Egypt. But what's it going to cost us? You know, what's it going to cost us? Last point, David's deceptive loyalty. And this is where it gets really sketched, this whole story, starting at verse 8. I'll read 8 through 12. It says, Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for they were inhabitants of the land from ancient times. Hey, would, would you mind, like, if uh, I'm not God, but if, if you, you're, you're welcome, you're, you're welcome to stay here if, if you can be, if you can not be a, distra- a distraction. All right, I will. Thank you. Back at chapter, verse eight, verse eight, it says, now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for they were inhabitants of the land from ancient times, as you come to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt, and David attacked the land and did not leave a man or woman alive. And he took away the sheep, the cattle, the donkeys, the camels, and the clothing. Then he returned and came to Achish. Now Achish said, where have you made a raid today? And David said, against the Negev of Judah and against the negative of the, of the lights, and against the negative of the Kenites. And David did not leave a man or a woman alive to bring to Gath, saying, So has David done, and so has been his practice all the time that he has lived in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, He has surely made himself odious among the people Israel. Therefore, he will become my servant forever. You know, what happens here is, is uh, Hold on a second. All right. Well, thank you, safety team, for handling that, you know, as a, just so you guys know, like as a church we 're committed to like welcoming anyone that like wants to come in here regardless of kind of their mental state or their physical appearance or condition or whatever um, uh, there's there's this uh, we've we 've actually dealt with her before, and we kind of have a plan in place which you just saw get implemented uh, um, because we want to welcome people here to hear the. Teaching of God's word, but sometimes people are like not in a place to hear that, and uh, and so we've we have a kind of a way to deal with that too, and that's why our safety team exists. So thank you, safety team, and take a deep breath. <sighs> Somebody want to pray? Just uh, pray for I, again. I believe her name's Terry, if I remember correctly, and uh, and pray for me as we kind of get back into in all of us as we get our minds back involved to finish off the sermon. Anybody want to pray? I'm sorry, Jeremiah seventeen. 16, maybe, the, the second Jeremiah passage I had up there? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, and again, I skipped over this, but I'm going to come back to it. Like, this is what Jeremiah says, and, it's not, and it, it applies to all of us. This is why like, we cannot take our eyes off of what God has promised and what God has accomplished, because our heart is deceitful more than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? If you don't understand that, like the issue isn't like your behavior, isn't everything on the outside. It's it's what goes on in our hearts. And our hearts are inclined away from the Lord. In fact, that's what it went right then the next verse, Jen, the next Jeremiah verse. Yeah, in in verse fourteen. I guess it was right before that. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Like the only way our like, hearts that are inclined away from the Lord can be healed is from the Lord doing it. And there is nobody that, that healed themselves. If you're a Christian this morning, it's not because you are better or smarter or wiser or more sensitive or anything else. It's because God had mercy on you. And there is no one that is outside of the reach of God's healing. And even David, as he plummets like downward, Like God will bring him back. So like, going back to my opening illustration, so we stick with this message of Jesus, like the repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations because that's the message that God uses to transform us. Amen? Amen. So back into it. Uh, I think I was on point three. David's deceptive loyalty. You know, having secured his place in Philistia, we find out that this path that he's on is like a downward spiral. And, and we find out in verse 8 that David raids all these people. It says that he raids the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites. Well, the Geshurites and the Gerzites, we actually don't know a whole lot about. Um, I think they lived south of Philistia, like, but there's not even archaeological evidence for one of them. But the Amalekites, we know quite a bit about. And if, again, if you've been with us, I feel like I'm saying that too much, but there's a lot of things going back here. The Amalekites were like the long-term enemies of Israel. In fact, they had opposed God's people when they came up out of Egypt. And God said one day he was going to bring judgment upon them. And he he called King Saul to go and wipe them out as like an expression of his judgment. And one of the things that Saul did is he went and did almost everything that God said. But he kept like Agag, the king, alive. And he kept uh, all of the best sheep and oxen and stuff for himself. He didn't wipe them all out, and that was the very incident that that where where Samuel told him he comes up and he's like, "Hey, what's this bleeding of sheep that I hear?" And Saul's like, "Well, I kept the best to offer to the Lord," right, masking his disobedience in this religious like framework. And it was then that it was then that the that the kingdom where where Samuel told Saul like your kingdom is going to be torn from you because he didn't do what he was supposed to do with the Amalekites. You know, and so some people read this here in verse um, in verse 8, uh, where David's raiding all these people. It says that they were like the long-term inhabitants of the land. They were the people that God's judgment was, was to come upon earlier. And, and some people will like be, be inclined to think, well, well, he's just doing what Saul failed to do. He's proving himself to be a better king than Saul. But look what he does. Um, in verse 9, and David attacked the land and did not leave a man or woman alive. And he took away the sheep and the cattle and the donkeys and the camel and the clothing and he returned. If that was the case, that he was doing what Saul had failed to do, then he also did what Saul did and he disobeyed the Lord in like keeping all the stuff for himself. It gets worse. He comes back to Achish, king of Gath. And verse 10, now Achish said, where have you made a raid today? And David said, against the Negev of Judah and against the Negev of the Jeramielites and against the Negev of the Kenites. So Achish comes and says, hey, who are you even raiding? But instead of saying the Gershites and the whatever and the Amalekites, he says a different group of people. Well, we have to understand what's going on there. Those first three groups of people that he mentioned were enemies of the people of Israel and they were enemies of the Philistines. And so by raiding those people, like Achish wouldn't care that David was like attacking those other nations. But when Achish asked him who he was raiding, David lied to him. And he said against the Negev of Judah. Now the Negev is the, that desert area at the southern end of Israel. And it was part of the land of Judah. And there was two people groups in particular, the Jeremielites and the Kenites that, that lived in that area. So what David was saying, he, he didn't, tell Achish that he was raiding like their enemies. He said, no, I'm raiding my own people. I'm raiding my own tribe. I'm fighting against King Saul and the people of Israel. What David was doing is he was actually playing both sides. He was attacking enemies of Israel. He was plundering them. And he was telling Achish that he was attacking, he was attacking Judah in order to dispel any doubts that Achish might have about his loyalty. David's caught in this middle ground of, of trying to win the favor of like two groups of people, like his own people by attacking their enemies, and Achish, by by saying that he attacked Judah. And then we find out his motive. This is the only time we're, we're told what David's motive is, but look what he says. And David did not leave a man or woman alive to bring to death." saying, and then they directly quote him, lest they should tell about us, saying, so has David done, and so has been his practice all the time that he has lived with the Philistines. So when David made one of these raids, he would kill everybody. Why? So that there wouldn't be anybody left to go back to King Achish and tell them that, like, David wasn't doing what he was saying he was doing. Like, he lost, like, he, he, he moved into unbelief and into cynicism. He sought the approval and the place in Philistia. And then he got placed into a situation where he had to, he had to commit lies and brutality and murder to cover it up. It's a horrible place to be. And and the journey all began with his, like, path of unfaith. It foreshadows, like, a time to come in 2 Samuel where he does the same thing. Like, David never fully, like, is able to accomplish what what God calls his king to accomplish. You know, I think, like, sometimes it's hard for us to... Identify with a story like this because not many of us have committed genocide, you know. Um, there's a few, but they're not here on Sunday morning, I don't think. <laughs> Why are people rolling their eyes at me? Uh. But don't we take that same journey all the time? It starts with unbelief. We begin to doubt God's word about something. It moves to It moves to the cynicism about what God has, and then we just kind of drift into like living as if god isn 't really alive in this world and pursuing all the things that this world has to offer, and then we get placed into a place where our integrity and our righteousness and our faithfulness that demonstrated at the, that David demonstrated at the end of last chapter is completely devoid of us. Does that sound more familiar, and it all began with the journey of the simple act of unfaith. You know, we long for a sense of place. We long for approval. We lose sight of what's really important. And we just settle for what the the best that the world has to offer, our only hope. The best, the only good for me is what the Philistines have to offer. That lives in all of our hearts. And we need to like, we need to repent of that Ask for forgiveness for that. Ask for God to transform our hearts. You know, and thankfully, though, like David, I think it's important for us to realize that that David wasn't king because he was the perfect king. In fact, we find out that David never really is able to perfectly walk in that faithfulness and righteousness that that he did at the end of chapter 26. But the reality is this, is that God raised up another king who was always faithful, who was always righteous, and instead of a king who, like, sought his own safety, what did he do? He, he gave up his life for us. Instead of a king who, like, sought his own place and security, he left his place and he came down here to live among all of us. And ultimately to serve us and die in our place. provided the sacrifice so that anyone who repents and believes in the gospel can find life and hope in him. You know, the writer of Hebrews kind of ends this section that we looked at earlier from um, Hebrews chapter 11. And Aaron, you and the team can come back up. But he ends it here in, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And listen to the exhortation here in Hebrews chapter twelve, one through 3. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all of those people that have come before us in the faith, that have like, kept their eyes on the things above, who have like, persevered, who have, who have welcomed God's promises from the distance. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Lay aside every encumbrance. So whatever it is that's like fueling your unbelief in areas of your life, whatever it is that might be, that might be um, giving you cynicism about like what God wants to accomplish, whatever it is that you're doubting about the, the promises of God, even though he's proven himself to you over and over again, like, lay aside those encumbrances. Refocus on Jesus. That's what it says here. Let us run with endurance this race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Do you hear that? Like faith comes from the Lord. He's the author of it. And he's the perfecter of it. He's the one that's going to see it through to the end. So focus on him so that he, you can continue to walk by faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Like, he sits now as king over all. His promises are all going to be fulfilled to us. So consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So Aaron, why don't you close us, then I'll close him I just want to read in closing that whole passage from Jeremiah 17 that I quoted from earlier. Let me just read the... Starting at verse 5. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and he will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green. And it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the result of his deeds. And he goes on. A glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of, of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. All who turn away on earth will be written down. Because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me and I will be saved. For you are my praise. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that you came down and ministered to us in our sickness and in our in our failings that you were the perfect adam the the fulfillment of the promises of david the the one who came to to crush satan 's head forever and deliver us from all that this world has that, that drags us down and so Father, I just pray for each of us here that we would live as people of hope that 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 would be evident in the the way we conduct ourselves that we would live as if you 're still at work in this world because you are and and that um, you would bring us back together to just to celebrate your goodness because you are our praise. I pray these things in jesus' name. Amen.